to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Kai Tanaka, a PhD candidate in fiction at the University of Houston. His fiction has appeared in New South, The New Ohio Review, Joyland, and Tin House. His stories have been selected for Best Small Fictions, Best Microfiction, and Wigleaf's Top 50. Kai teaches creative writing classes at the Harris County Jail in Houston, Texas, and he is the online reviews and interviews editor for Gulf Coast. Kai has brought a flash fiction piece to read today titled The Knife. The Knife. Many years ago, my wife and I were living in New York City together, making landscape drawings. We were squatting in this abandoned apartment, so whatever money we made, we spent on movies and food. We had a friend who worked at an art house cinema, and she gave us free popcorn. We saw a lot of foreign movies and bad student films. We ate out mostly because we knew some good, cheap restaurants in our neighborhood. Most of those places don't exist anymore, and the ones that do are no longer cheap. One time, my wife got a package from an ex-boyfriend, a birthday present, I think. She opened it up and found a cooking knife, a very expensive-looking Japanese santoku knife, to be precise. We laughed about it because it was so useless to us. We didn't know how to cook, and we hardly ever used our kitchen. I'm not even sure our stove worked. So we sat around, drinking beer and poking fun at her weird ex-boyfriend, the knife glistening between us on the table. After drinking a few beers, my wife pushed the knife toward me and laid her arm down on the tabletop. Cut me, she said. I laughed because we'd both been drinking and joking, and it seemed like it was just another joke. Cut me, she repeated. I want to know how sharp it is. I tested the edge very gently with the calloused pad of my thumb. I told her it was pretty sharp. Good, she said. Then cut me. I want to know how sharp it is. I told her again that it was pretty sharp, but it seemed like my word wasn't good enough for her. So I picked up the knife and I cut her arm. I cut just below the elbow on the soft flesh of her inner forearm. I lowered the knife gently. I didn't even really push down, but the skin seemed to part before the blade without even touching it. We both stared at the cut on her forearm for a minute. It was a perfect fissure. It didn't even bleed at first. It's strange to say, but it didn't look like a wound at all. It looked more like a craft project, like when you cut moist clay with a string, but then it started bleeding a lot. And then it did look like a wound. My wife knew some first aid, so she put a fistful of paper towel on it, bound it up with masking tape, and raised it above her head. I asked her if it was okay, and she said it didn't even hurt, so we kept drinking beer. After an hour, she changed the dressing three times, and it was still bleeding. We kept saying things to each other like, do you think it looks deep? I thought it looked deep, but I didn't really know anything about wounds or anything back then. Finally, When it had been bleeding for almost two hours, we decided we needed to go for help. One of our friends knew a nurse who lived alone a few blocks from where we were. It was late and we were drunk, but when we explained through the intercom what was going on, the nurse let us in. She looked at my wife's arm and said we should go to the hospital. She said she'd never seen such a little cut produce so much blood before. It was a beautiful cut, she said. My wife and I both swelled with pride when she said that because, as artists, we enjoyed being exceptional. We asked the nurse if she could maybe stitch it up for us at her apartment because neither of us had health insurance and we were nervous about the county hospital. She seemed like she genuinely wanted to help us, but she said she couldn't because she didn't have the necessary equipment. 
we had to take the bus to this county hospital in the Lower East Side. I forget the name. For some reason, the subway didn't go there. We were still pretty drunk when we arrived at the ER, and we had to wait for a long time because the place was full of emergency cases worse than ours. One lady was so sick, she was just stretched out on the floor of the waiting room, moaning. Every so often, her young son stooped over her to see if she needed anything, but she never did. Another fellow had lost his finger somehow. He had it there with him in a plastic bag full of snow, which was soon only a bag of water. Meanwhile, my wife's arm was bleeding, and we needed to keep going to the bathroom for more paper towels to press on the wound. When they finally invited us to the doctor's office, the nurse looked at my wife's arm and asked if it was an accident. My wife hesitated. Not really, she said. The nurse asked if the wound was self-inflicted. Not really, my wife repeated. The nurse then asked in a low voice if someone had cut her arm, glancing at me sideways. My wife looked at me. No, not really, my wife said. We all laughed nervously for a few minutes. So it was an accident, the nurse said in this hilarious way, like the interview might be some type of comedy bit that she was game for, but didn't quite understand. Not really, my wife said. When the doctor arrived, he didn't say much. He looked at the arm, which my wife admitted she was getting tired of showing to people. He took some surgical supplies from a drawer and stitched it up. It couldn't have taken longer than a minute. I think all three of us were very drunk and tired. We thanked the doctor, but he didn't say anything. I tried to shake his hand. I offered him my hand, but he didn't seem to notice me there. As we left the hospital, the sun was rising. We took the bus back to our house, and after I put my wife to bed, I found the knife on the counter where we left it. I washed it carefully and put it in an empty drawer. We have brought it with us every time we have moved, and we still have it to this day. Sometimes we take it out and look at it and talk about what a beautiful cut it was and how great a knife it is, though, truth be told, we still don't know the first thing about cooking. That was great. Thanks so much for reading it, and thanks for being here. My pleasure. Um, yeah, I mean, I read that story. I loved it. Honestly, the tension in it is just palpable. The first time I was reading it, I was like cringing the whole time, just like waiting for the ball to drop, you know, like as soon as the knife shows up, I know as a reader that something terrible is going to happen. And then, uh, like I'm worried about her bleeding out or getting infected. And then later I'm worried that they're going to get in trouble at the hospital. And that tension just keeps building and building, which I love. Um, so what do you think the key is to building tension in a story like this? Hmm. If, if you'd asked me this when I wrote the story, which is a few years ago, I, I don't know if I would have had the same answer, but I've been, I've been thinking about horror a lot lately. And I think that having those sort of familiar structures, uh, like, so you're talking about the, the like complexity of, um, you know, the, the wound in the beginning and then the anxiety of the nurse and then the anxiety of the hospital. And it, the, the story takes this very familiar form. I think as soon as the knife shows up, we know somebody's going to get cut. Um, and I think then your anxiety is just allowed to go crazy with it. So, so embracing these very almost cliche sources of tension uh, to structure a story around, I think really helps it. A, a reader can only think of so many things at once. So if you give them a very simple story, they're more likely to feel anxious or you can make them feel anxious more because if you're doing something really complicated, they'll be thinking about that. They won't be feeling tense. Yeah, yeah, that, that totally makes sense to me. So you said that you might have had a different answer when you were 
like first writing it, do you have a sense of what that answer might have been or like how your view of this might have changed since then? Well, I, I wrote it because I, a friend of mine had told me kind of a similar story and I was really, really taken with it. That I mean, it was it, it, not the same story. I, I fictionalized it, but it, it was the same premise of like he had a, he had his girlfriend cut his arm because he wanted to see how sharp the knife was. And then there was this whole kind of complicated night that he had as a result of having made that sort of foolish decision. I, w- I wasn't thinking about tension when I was writing it. I just loved that story a lot. Um, and I think what it was for him, and I don't think that's the way the way it works out in this story, but the way it was for him is it was like this sort of passionate decision that there are suddenly consequences for. Um, but I, I don't know if that really gets you to your thing about tension. I think tension is just what happens when you have a, a problem that doesn't have a lot of answers. Um, and I think the the journey of the story of like taking you from sort of one site to another to another and and the problem gets progressively worse and nothing gets solved. I think that 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 creates the, the, the tension. It seems difficult to solve. Yeah, I like that idea of just keeping it simple because I think that does work in the story. Like it's a logical progression, um, but it's really just like like three conversations. It's just like them talking about the knife and then resulting in the cut, talking to the neighbor nurse about it, going to the hospital, talking to them about it. And in each step of that process, there's a sense that something really bad could happen. But one of the things that was really interesting in the story for me was that nothing really bad happens to these people, no matter how much you think it's going to happen, or maybe even that they deserve something bad to happen to them. So was that intentional? Did you have that idea going into it? I didn't have that idea going into it, but yeah, they, they have it very easy. Um, and I, I think that's okay in fiction. I think, I, 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 I think being generous and kind to your characters is not something that you hear a lot of people talking about. I think you mostly hear the opposite of people trying to punish their characters and ratchet up tension and, and do kind of horrible things to characters. But I, I, I think as long as you can get your reader to, to care about the, you know, what's going to happen to your characters, I think it's okay to, to not, to not twist the knife so hard on them. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think we, you know, th- there's a lot of unexamined privilege going on in these characters life, right? They, they are in some way living, um, at the fringes of society, but they seem to be living there quite happily um, and w- without much complication. And they're very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah, right. Well, I, I was going to ask, like, I don't know how much you think about theme, but I had a, a couple of like takes on this piece that I wanted to talk about. Cause the first time I read it, I was just too tense to even think about themes. I was just like, I, I want to keep reading to see what happens to these people. But then I reread it and I started thinking about it. And I was really drawn to this metaphor of the cut as a piece of mm-hmm. art. Um, it's talked about in ways that, you know, you might talk about a story in progress. Um, you know, they examine the cut and ask, do you think it looks deep? I thought it looked deep, but I don't, uh, I didn't really know anything back then. And then they, <laughs> I never thought of that, um, as a reading of, uh, the word deep as in profound. I yeah, actually, I hadn't I, intended that, but I like that reading a lot. Yeah. And then they take it to the nurse, uh, neighbor and they ask her to examine it and she wants to help them, but she doesn't really have the tools to help them. She says, which I mean, for me, I'm like the whole time I'm thinking, gosh, this is kind of like when you put a story up for workshop <laughs> in class, you know? So, uh, so you said you hadn't thought about that before, but I, but I'm still going to ask the question. Do you consider flash fiction to be a, a little cut that bleeds and bleeds the more you look at it? 
I do. And I, I think the, yeah, I think good flash stories bear reexamining. And I think if, if you don't do that, you kind of lose the story. I think just sort of the nature of reading flash stories can be, it can feel a little Sisyphean, especially if you got this, like, I mean, I, I, I don't know how, how close people are to the sort of internet flash fiction community, but a lot of stories get published, a lot of them, you know, pretty frequently. And as as someone who's really invested in that community, I'm, I'm reading flash stories for the first time every day. I'm seeing new stories all over the place. And after doing that for a few years, the stories, they, they start to wash over you a little bit. I think one of the problems of flash fiction is because it's so short, the reader does not get to spend very much time with the story. Ultimately you can read a story and, spend some time with it, but um, it won't be the same level of commitment as, you know, reading Anna Karenina. And I think that's right. one of the problems that flash fiction has. And I think it gets addressed when you look at a story over and over again. And I think those, the stories, and I, I feel lucky to be a teacher because I get to teach the same stories over and over again. And, and when, when I do that, I, I get to learn, I, I get to see the story uh, with new eyes. And I think those, those stories that I've taught a lot of times and have kind of a relationship with, I, I do feel, um, they're cuts that keep bleeding. Yeah. But I guess in, in that way, uh, you know, any piece of writing that you spend a lot of time with is a cut that keeps bleeding. Um, <laughs> yeah, as long right. as, as long as you can, you know, can go back and keep looking at it and, and thinking about it. And, uh, you know, if it haunts you, you know, <laughs> then it's doing its job. Yeah, I think so. Well, you mentioned a minute ago, the privilege of these characters. And that was something that also stood out to me upon rereading it. Um, I mean, to be an artist, you know, often requires some level of privilege, but these characters are squatting in an apartment. They're mooching food from their friends. The cut happens because they're bored, but when they're at the hospital, you know, the emergency room, the waiting room is full of people with real problems who now presumably have to wait longer because of these two. They tell the nurse about the injury, like it's some kind of joke, but you know, it doesn't seem like a joke to the doctor, nor do I imagine it's a joke to the guy in the waiting room with his, finger floating in a baggie full of water um but like as a reader we feel that tension building the whole time and we're sensing that something awful is going to happen but then it doesn't the characters walk away without suffering any real consequences and maybe not even really learning anything in the process so i found myself wondering and like thinking about the purpose of art you know i'm still stuck on that like metaphor of the cut as a piece of art um, and I was thinking about like, what, what is art supposed to do? Do, do artists, do you think artists spend too much time looking for praise, um, as opposed to learning from their characters and the stories they're writing? Maybe sometimes I, I, I sometimes think I, I, I've now, so I'm in a PhD program. I did an MFA and before that I did a BFA. So I've spent a lot of time in creative writing workshops and, I do think that sometimes for me, the best thing I get out of a workshop is a little bit of praise. Um, writing especially is such a solitary process that I don't really, sometimes I don't even really know if I've got a story that people want to read until somebody praises it. So I don't want to, I don't want to diminish the importance of praise, but I think the, the way you present it here, I, I, I think it's a, it's a pretty reasonable criticism of these, of these characters. Um, well, there's that line that like really the, the thing that really stuck in my head was when the neighbor tells them how much of a beautiful cut it is. And they like swell up with pride at this at this cut that they did so perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> and it reminded me of myself a little bit when I'm in workshop and somebody says that my story is good. And I'm like, oh, 
I feel so much better about this piece now, which I love the idea that, that there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes I agree. That's what a writer needs is just a pat on the back and then the encouragement to keep going. Um, do you find that you encounter a fair amount of self-doubt when you're working on stories? Um, I, especially with flash stories, I, I do because I, I think the way, at least the way I do them and the way I encourage my students to do them is to have a large number of them, you know, and to write one every day for several months. And then you, and then you end up with this repository of some of them, not very good stories and some of them great stories and being able to tell the difference is sometimes difficult knowing what kinds of things are going to hit a person. I mean, I, I remember writing this story thinking that it was okay. And then I read it at a, like an open reading thing and people really liked it. And I remember for the first time thinking that, Oh yeah, actually it is, it is good. I, I, there are, there's stuff here that I thought was good, you know? And I, and the kind of conversation we're having about it now I've, I've had with a few people, this is a story I've, I've, I've read a few times and talked to a few people about, um, but that, that layer of kind of uh, reflection and analysis is something that I really enjoy doing with my own stories, but it's difficult to do when it's just you in a room alone. Uh, it, it really, right. it really changes the way you see your work to hear other people respond to it. So I think that is the best thing about writing workshop um, is not yeah. necessarily um, the feedback you get, the concrete feedback, which I don't think is usually, I mean, at least in my experience, all that helpful, but being able to see your piece through someone else's eyes um can help you understand what you wrote. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, it's, I think people who don't have a ton of experience with workshop view it as like an opportunity to get suggestions on things to change. But in my experience, um, it's more about seeing if people are reading it the way that I thought they would, or if they're reading it a different way, which signals that, you know, I need to change something or if I'm heading in the right direction. Yeah. Um, has that been a, your experience as well? Yeah. And I think more, more than that, I, I, I like that about workshop and that's been really helpful to me. And sometimes I, you know, when people aren't seeing what I'm seeing in a piece that I've written, that can be kind of heartbreaking. But to, to, to me, the real use of workshop is not anything to do with my own work. It's reading other people's work and mm-hmm. being forced to sit down and write a coherent um, response to somebody else's work. Yeah. Uh, And I think that has taught me a lot more about my own writing than having my own work workshop. And I think that's the other thing that feels a little counterintuitive, at least to my students. And so I feel the need to to say that here, that it's, it's more about what you give to others than what you receive in workshop. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, one of the reasons when we were first starting this podcast was uh, one of the things that we, we wanted to do it for was, was the chance to show current MFA students like what other MFA students are writing in other programs. Because like for me, when I was applying, I remember thinking like, I don't know how my work stacks up against people who are at a similar point in their career. You know, if you're just reading like published work, you feel like, okay, well, I'm not that good yet. But getting the chance to see what other people are writing in your own workshop and then also seeing what other people are writing in workshops around the country, I think is super helpful. And I think also the chance to be able to talk to people who are sort of around the same place you are with your, with their writing about process. That was something I, for, for me, I don't know if I really walked out of my MFA with much good writing. Um, I think I did a lot of my best writing, like publishable writing after my MFA, but mm-hmm. I learned a lot about how, how to work and how 
I tried out a lot of different processes that people recommended. Some of them worked, some of them didn't, but I, you know, I went to Arkansas, so that's a four year program. And, uh, in those four years, I think I learned, I didn't really produce much good writing, but I learned how to write. Well, speaking about process and we were talking, been talking about themes with this story is theme something you think about much, like, uh, when you're writing a story or is that something you think about after you write, or do you not think about it that much at all as a writer? It's really not something I try to think about very much as I'm writing. Um, I, I've, actually, I was reading this story and thinking about the, so the theme I had intended in this story back when I wrote it was I thought it was something to do with the way in relationships we are constantly kind of drumming up the past. And this is a knife from her ex-boyfriend that is the tool for their destruction that he sort of gives them um, in the way that fighting about the past and relationships and dwelling on the past can be unproductive. But I actually like your reading better. I, I like, I like <laughs> the idea that if you are writing um, carefully and, you know, with, with generosity toward your characters and you're thinking about your characters as if they're um, they have a life and they, you know, seek meaning in the world the themes will arrive in one form or another. And, and I, I don't feel like as a writer, I have a lot of control over theme um, because I, the times when I have tried to control theme, the stories end up being a little um, um, on the nose, I guess is what the, the idiom people use. It, it just feels like, it feels like you're reading my theme and not my characters. Well, I couldn't agree more. I find the moment that, theme comes to the forefront of my mind while working on a story it, it loses all momentum it, like some the story becomes flat the more i think about theme while in the process of writing it um it becomes flat and i think it's you hit on something there that idea that the most important thing is just to be thinking about your characters as real people with real desires and wants and needs and you know fully forming um them on the page and then letting the themes arise. Honestly, it sounds a little bit like a uh, Donald Barthelme essay, um, not knowing, which I'm sure, you know, Donald mm. Barthelme because you're at the university of Houston. Um, you've worked as a uh, editor at Gulf coast, which was founded by him. Um, are there any writers that have like really inspired you as a flash writer or nowadays as a novelist? I think I didn't really understand what flash fiction was until I started reading um, Lydia Davis and Isaac Babel. I think mm-hmm. um, Isaac Babel obviously predating the idea of flash fiction, but he, you know, the, the red cavalry stories uh, are probably some of my favorite stories. Um, I, I, I was turned on to them because someone, someone, Oh, it was Dennis Johnson. Cause I was in my, I was in my MFA and I was really into Jesus son. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think in, a, in an interview, he was sort of disparaging that collection. And he said, he said it was just a bad imitation of the red cavalry stories. Um, he was disparaging his own collection, his own work. Yeah. He was like, wow. his, Oh, Jesus son is just a bad Isaac Babel imitation. <laughs> and uh, then reading Isaac Babel, I, I see what he's talking about. I don't think it's I, I don't agree with him, uh, but I I like that about those stories a lot. And and those and those stories do a lot of the same things flash fiction does now. And that you don't have necessarily a character arc or like a big kind of complex thing going on. Usually, it's a small gesture or something that carries a lot of meaning, and the language um, kind of buoys that up and is able to is able to do things with a very small couple of 
items and his plot points in a story that, you know, a novel or a short story couldn't really do. So you worked for a couple of years as the fiction editor at Gulf Coast. Is that right? Yeah. So I was fiction editor for two years and I'm now the reviews and interviews editor. Our jobs sort of cycle after two years for most most positions. So when you were working in that position as fiction editor, um, did you publish much flash fiction? Um, And if so, what were you looking for um, as someone who is choosing a story to be published? So we do the the Bartholomew contest every year, and one of the one of the things that brings the staff together is uh, going through all the Bartholomew contest entries. And I had submitted to that contest uh, before I came to UH, so I was excited to see sort of what the process was behind that. And I, I can talk a little bit about that. It, it's a really it was really fun for us because what what happens is the whole well before COVID the whole staff would get together usually at someone's house, and we'd have like um, we'd all have selected, I think usually out of 20 or 25 possibilities, we, we, we would bring two to the meeting. Um, and so the, the ones you bring to the meeting tend to be stories that catch your attention right away, that have some sort of clear uh, narrative purpose from, from the start. You know, usually there's a character pretty, pretty soon. You know, so I, I think there are, I mean, and I've written flash stories that are a little bit more, um, a little more abstract and are a little bit more sort of uh almost more prose poems. Those don't tend to do as well when you're reading a stack of 25, the ones that stick out tend to be the ones that have, you know, memorable characters and situations that you think about 10, 15 minutes after. Um, and so then we'll, we'll all get together at, at somebody's house. Everybody has their two things and we'll get in little pods and everybody will read and, and rate the stories that we we've been given. Um, and then the stories that have the highest scores tend to go to the, whoever our judges that year. Um, but, but I think the stories that do well, um, are, are the ones, are the ones that are, again, you know, pretty simple, pretty simple, pretty straightforward and are, are clear, uh, that they can hold up to a quick cursory scan, but they can also hold up to like a, like a longer, more careful reading. And I think that's where most of us want to end up with flash fiction. I've, I've written flash stories that require you sit with them and be sort of carefully read through them. And I think for readers, that's a little frustrating. I think as, as a reader, you want to, you want to be able to fall into a world, even if for a couple minutes, and if a story doesn't give you the opportunity to do that, it's, it's just going to be a little bit of a harder sell. Um, not that those stories can't be great, but they, they won't do well in a contest where there's a whole bunch of other stories vying for readers' attention. Interesting. Um, so would you say that there's anything specific that you learned from your time editing at Gulf Coast that you've applied to your own writing? Oh, so many things. I recommend everybody spend some time at a literary magazine. The, the bigger the magazine, the better. Um, the thing that struck me about Gulf Coast, I'd worked on literary magazines before, but I never worked on a magazine that where we had such a big staff and where we had so many submissions and we would go to our fiction meetings every month and people would bring in stories that I, I thought some of them, I just thought were absolute trash. And I would bring in some that everybody else thought I, the ones I'd brought in were trash. And these are people, these are book people. I mean, these are people who are also in their PhDs. They spent their whole career doing what I've done and we can't agree on what makes a good story. And we'd be sitting there, you know, fighting about 
details in a person's story and, and also just the general, like what was the, the writer's idea behind this story and what kind of, what's, what's the ethos of this writer. And walking away from two years at Gulf coast, I realized that there's no such thing as good taste uh, or taste in general um, or not, not taste. There's no such thing as a, as a good story. Um, and, th- and there's no such thing as good taste because everybody's taste is so unique and every story has a reader. Um, and there, there were stories that everybody hated except for one person at the table who loved it. And it's like, I, I, I really, especially for writers who are struggling to find publication for their work, like there, I really don't think there is such a thing as a bad story. It's just a story that hasn't found its, its readership yet. And I, it, it blew my mind at Gulf Coast because we had so many stories. Um, it, it, it's, it was crazy to me that we would be fighting over them. Um, and with talented people, I, I couldn't, I had a story that I love and a, like a talented person who I, who's writing, I respect and admire. Like I couldn't talk them into this being a good story for them. It never would be because that, that's their taste. That's so interesting. And I imagine like for some listeners, they might hear that and think like, it's all a crapshoot. It's all luck, you know, like you know, like what if my story never appeals to the right person? But I think there's also some freedom in that view as well, right? That, you know, like the goal shouldn't be to dwell too much on, okay, what do I have to do in the story that I'm writing to make it publishable? But instead just working on, um, like you said, crafting good characters and telling your story. Um, Yeah. I I mean, I, I think there's, the the lie you're originally fed, I think, for me when I was like an, an undergrad, is that this is some sort of meritocracy, and that that good work always kind of finds a home. And if you're producing good work, it'll it'll get to the right place. I don't think that's fully true. Um, I think there's a lot of people who are producing really good work who aren't who are having trouble publishing um, their work. But I, I don't think it's completely a crapshoot either. I, I, th- I think good work does tend to rise. And I think the other thing too is, is we as a community kind of start agreeing on what good work is. So you might not like uh, – if you read George Saunders in a vacuum, you might not like it. But if you read it in a class where everybody likes it, you'll suddenly start to change your opinion about George Saunders. I think a lot of people get talked into liking things. One of the things that I re- often hear from people um, reading George Saunders for the first time, especially people who are in academia studying creative writing, is they say, this guy's breaking every single rule that I've been taught to follow. And it's like, it kind of, maybe it goes back to what we're talking about here, that maybe we should be less concerned in, with writing what we think people will like and more concerned with just writing what's true to us. I do think rules uh, get in people's way. I think a lot of people go to writing programs in order to find a set of rules that they can apply to their writing and that'll solve the problems of their writing. And I, I just think that there aren't any rules that I would follow consistently enough to make them worthy of being rules. Um, I, I think I, I do think, though, that your own taste becomes a sort of a rulemaking process for yourself. There are just things that I like writing and there are things that I like reading. And I try to try to create those things. And it, it makes it a lot easier when it's just you doing something you like rather than it trying to find, uh, you know, a place for yourself in the market. And I think obviously everybody who wants to participate in the literary marketplace has to do that at some point. But I think if you come to it from a point of view of of these are the things I like. These are the things I do well. This is what I care about. This is what matters to me as, as a writer. You'll be in a lot better shape. 
Well, Gulf Coast is published at the University of Houston, where you are currently a PhD student in fiction. Um, let's talk about the program a bit, if you don't mind. Um, Houston has both a three-year MFA program and a five-year PhD program. The school accepts 20 new students across three genres each year. Um, the curriculum for both master's and PhD students emphasizes creative writing and literary study. Um, and there are no fewer than eight major reading series available to students in Houston, a city known for its bustling literary and art scene. So what drew you to the University of Houston? Um, I, I think the, the, the short answer is they were offering me more money than anyone else was. Um, but I, I was excited to go to Houston, too. I, I was really pleased that I, I got in there because I, I, I've i always been kind of interested in Houston and the the city did not disappoint. It is a really good literary scene with a lot of interesting people who have spent their careers working in it. And um, yeah, it's, it's a real, it's a really great place to, to write. And I was, I was attracted to the, the, the faculty. I mean, I faculty reached out to me and they were really excited about my work. And I think, you know, ultimately I, I want to work with people who are excited about the stuff that I'm working on. Um, so that, that was another important thing for me too. So I, I was a little surprised though on the website when it said eight different reading series. Um, have have you been to many of these reading series? And if so, like what have been your favorites? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if I could name all eight, uh, but th- yeah, th- there are a few that are really connected to the, to the program. Um, the uh, so Gulf Coast puts on a, a monthly reading series uh, that that's really good, um, and it's it's a great opportunity for. Uh, people in the program to read with uh, published writers. I, I got to read with Carmen Machado, which was oh, amazing. Wow. Um, and cause she was our, like our, like uh, headliner for, for that, the day that I was, I was supposed to read. Um, there's a really great reading series, not affiliated with the program called poison pen. Uh, then they just meet at this one bar once a month that we're used to before COVID. Um, they meet at a bar once a month. It's, it, it's sort of a nice coming together of like the, um, the sort of like uh, slam poetry scene with with some of the the like the people in the the creative writing program who don't often connect, but there's a pretty big slam scene in Houston, so it's kind of cool to see writers who are working and publishing and doing a lot of stuff in the community, but aren't necessarily affiliated with the program. I think with a lot of programs I've been with, you sort of all the literary events exist in and around the program itself, and the program in Houston is just one aspect of the literary scene, and I, I really like that. Cool. So, um, like I imagine the Gulf coast one is also attracting a lot of people outside of the university. What, what does that reading series usually look like? Is that also in like a bar? Are they getting like a, a house or what, what, what do those reading series look like? Um, it used to be in a bar. They, they moved it to uh to a gallery space actually. And they, they got, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a really nice reading series. Now it's, it's in a gallery space. They've got a local beer company who like, who like gives out free beer at the event. Um, it's, you know, it's, I think it's usually 50, 60 people um, sitting in chairs surrounded by art reading um, somebody reading at a podium in, in front. It's a, it's, it's a really nice uh, space and uh, the, the readers they bring in are, are awesome. So it, yeah, it's one of my favorite. And the other thing too, about, about reading series, if we're talking about that is the thing I like about these series is each one comes with kind of a different social group. So I, I like the readings, obviously, um, but 
the thing I enjoy, I think maybe most about these reading series is sort of getting to see the people who are involved in these communities um, and being able to connect with and socialize with them in a less formal way. It's a, a really, it's a really great community. I think it's an important thing to think about too. Like if, when you're considering a program, because um, finding a place that creates opportunities for you as a student in the program to connect with people in like the greater literary community, I think is really important. Um, Instead of, you know, it's nice to go to readings with your um, cohort, but if, if that's the only, if those are the only other writers that you're interacting with or just the people in your program, it's, you know, it's, it's not quite as nice as being able to like um, meet people who are doing things outside of the program and see, you know, how they're succeeding or failing or, and talk to them. When I went to my MFA at Arkansas, that's a really small program. Um, and so I really, I liked it at first. It was a small cohort I, I came in with and we were all really close, but I, I, four, four years in, in a small program, it, it's a little claustrophobic. You're in workshops with the same people like every semester. And it, and it kind of is like, um, if you weren't crazy about their writing, the first fall by the last spring, you are, you're really over it. Um, and, and that's, that's probably true of my, my writing and other people I was in the program with as well. But the, the thing I like about Houston, so in, in a certain way, a small program is really good because you get really get to know people um, and you really get to know people's writing and, and you get uh, it, it's, I almost felt, felt bad for the professors because they had less experience with our writing than, than we did by the time we got like to our third and fourth year. It was like, we were telling the professors about our classmates writing. Um, but Houston's great because it's a big program and I'm in, I, I, I have a few, like sometimes I get to take classes with my friends, but not that often. Usually I'm in classes with um, like literature students and, um, and MFA students. Who I don't know as well who I just, you know, and it, and they, they bring a really great perspective. So it's, it's really wonderful to have the mix. Well, Outside of workshop, um, the pro- the website says that it's a program that's pretty heavy on literary study, and I know that you said you made a point to take as many lit classes as possible. Um, why did you make that decision, and and what have you learned from those classes? Well, um, so when I was doing my MFA, I wasn't very much focused on lit. I sort of took the minimum lit that I had to, and mostly focused on workshops. But I I've sort of reached the point. I think a lot of PhDs. Um, and creative writing have this of just sort of, I think I've learned about as much as I can learn from workshop. And I have other ways of sort of showing people my writing and making sure that I'm doing the writing in the way, you know, that that's good enough for publication. Um, and really what I was missing, I felt in my kind of literary life was an understanding of uh, a, a lot of different texts from all over the world. And also a set like a, solid grounding in theory. So I, one of my goals was to not read books that I could read on my own. Um, so I, I was trying to find classes that I, where the reading list was something that I wasn't particularly interested in, or I would never reach for this on my own time because I kind of understood that there wouldn't be, there would be no more of this for me. So, uh, I, like I, I never spent time with, um, like Thoreau before. I never really, I never had to read Thoreau for any, any of my classes. And so I, I took a class on American transcendentalism and it was fantastic. I never would have read those guys if I hadn't taken that class. And I'm really glad I did. I took a post-colonial theory class, which I probably wouldn't have picked up on my own. 
Um, it's difficult theory, um, but I'm, I'm so glad that I did. It really changed my perspective as a, as a reader and a writer. So I am so grateful for the classes where I wasn't intellectually capable of handling the, the reading list um, because I feel like I'm a much better resource to other um, to my students now and also to other writers. So I, I, I think for a PhD, especially the lit classes do more for my writing now than the, the workshops. And why do you think that is? Because I'm not, I'm not so, I, I think I, when I started out writing, I really needed a lot of instruction and in craft, you know, for example, just how to put together a scene. What, what are the demands of, of a story? You know, how, how to structure, structure the thing, how to make a believable character, just like line level stuff is really difficult. Teaching short story writing to people who haven't written a short story, you know, you, you kind of come to realize just how many little tiny micro skills are involved in making verisimilitude happen um, in, in, in a piece of prose fiction. Uh, I, I don't have that problem anymore. Um, it, it pretty much I can, I can create the worlds I, I want to create in my stories and I can create a sense of verisimilitude, you know, I, whatever, like t- 20 years later, I, I, I can do that thing. <laughs> but um, what I, I struggle with is just like the, understanding how literature fits together, you know, like, and I think that that's the project of a literature PhD usually is sort of an understanding of how the history of literature fits together and how it has led us to this moment and the way different texts um, inform one another. And I'm a vessel, you know, I want to be informed by those things and you can't unless you read them and try to understand them. So I, I feel like that has been really helpful for my, my writing, just having a broader sense of the literary landscape. Well, outside of the classroom, uh, we talked a little bit about um, opportunities in the Houston area for within the literary scene, but there also seem to be um, some ways to get involved in the greater community. Um, I know you've spent some time teaching community workshops. Could you tell us about that experience and and others that uh, other opportunities that might be available to creative writing students at the University of Houston? Yeah, I, I was shocked at just how many opportunities are available to creative writing students. So I, I taught um, I adjuncted a class at Texas Southern University um, for for masters uh, for like a masters in journalism students on narrative. It was awesome. Um, I I taught a class at the high school for the visual and performing arts. Uh, a lot of people, I, I, I didn't do this, but a lot of people teach for wits, which is writers in the schools, which is, um, uh, this happens in a lot of MFA programs, but it's, it's a, usually a program where, um, creative writing students go into elementary school classrooms, usually once a week, um, for a, some sort of period of time. And, um, I taught community workshops for this organization called imprint, um, which is one of the sort of many literary organizations in town. And there's another organization called Grackle and Grackle that I've taught for a few times. And those are people who um, just community members who pay the pay pay a fee to take a class from someone who's usually someone who's in the creative writing program. Well, I I know that you also um, have taught incarcerated people at the Harris County jail. Is that something that was organized through the university or um, something you pursued on your own? No, I, I'd done that in the past. So I'd taught um, when I lived in Boston, I, I had taught for a program at BU that operated in a, in a prison. And so I, that was something I, I wanted to do uh, in Houston. There wasn't a program like that that existed. So I went to that the organization in print actually, and asked them if they'd fund me to do that. And um, 
it took a little while, but they were, they were able to put that together and they came through for me. It was, it's, it really felt to me being able to come here and set that up in a semester. It really felt like Houston was like the land of opportunity. There's, if you've got a good idea there, there's not a lot of ego attached to, or there's not, there's no sense of like a line, you know, if you've got a good idea, um, you can get someone's ear and, and, uh, they'll, they'll let you do what you want to do. Um, I was amazed at just how quickly and efficiently that program came together. That's great. Um, and tell us about that experience. I'd love to hear what that's like. Yeah. So I, 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 I only had a bicycle when I moved to Houston, so I wasn't able to teach. I, I, it would, it would have been cool to teach at one of the bigger prisons, um, in the area like Huntsville is, but it's a little bit of a drive. So I, I taught, uh, poetry classes at the Harris County jail, which is, it's the second biggest jail in the country. Um, there's a lot of the, the joke that better O'Rourke made about the Harris County jail is that it's the, uh, largest mental health facility in the state of Texas. Um, because so, so, so many people who kind of fall through the cracks of society end up right. there one way or another. Um, and yeah, my, my, my students had most of them not written much poetry before. Um, but uh, they're all fantastic. And it's, it's a very odd experience to, to teach in, in this, um, you know, usually it was, it was a, v- a relatively small room with, with 30 or 40 people in it. And I didn't have a podium or anything. I was like putting my stuff on a trash can and like talking, um, a little bit intimidating to start out with, but it, it was, it's probably the thing I'm, I'm most proud of accomplishing, um, in my time here. Yeah. You also told me that that experience has expanded your professional interests. How so? Oh, uh, before I did this, I don't think I really had the necessary CV credentials to really get a job in prison education. Um, that's kind of, it's kind of a narrow field and a lot of people who end up there kind of go there through criminal justice. Um, but I think I, I have enough experience now working in correctional facilities and teaching in correctional facilities where uh, I would now be able to add that to jobs that I can apply for. Um, and you think that's something you might pursue? Uh, yeah, I, I would love to do that. That's I, I, I think, yeah, I, as I, I've, I've soured a little on spending my life in academia in this program. And so, yeah, that's, to, to me, it seems like a really great um, use of my time. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed all the time I've spent teaching in correctional facilities and I think I enjoy it a little more than, um, teaching traditional college freshmen. Well, um, when you entered the PhD in fiction at Houston, you were in your own words, a fabulous flash fiction writer, and now you will be leaving with three horror novels in progress. Can you connect the dots for us? Give us a sense of like what you were writing before, what you're writing now, how they're different and maybe what you've learned um, along the way. Well, I, I set some goals before I, I entered the program and I think I, I didn't do that for my MFA and I kind of wish I had. Um, but this time I, I, I hadn't had the time or the like emotional energy to really, to really get to work on a novel um, because I'd been working and it's just, it's hard to sustain the level of, of focus you need to write a novel when you're doing a, a thousand other things. So my, my goal in the program was to be able to write a novel. I was able to write a, a few actually while I was here, which is good. Um, I think there's a lot of connection between novels and flash fiction though. Actually, I, I think there novels and flash fiction have more in common than, uh, than they either do with traditional short stories, because I think for novels and flash fiction, both, you're, you're allowed to be a little bit messy. I think flash fiction is less formulaic, maybe just because it's newer. 
Um, it's not quite as established as a form. Um, and I think the same thing is true with novels that there just isn't a perfect novel. There's not really a template for a novel that is fully satisfying. Um, and so they are very much springboards for experimentation in a way that I, I don't feel traditional short stories are. And I, 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 I spent a lot of time in my MFA and, and here too sort of being frustrated about the conventions of the 20 page short story. Um, Probably just because I'm not very good at writing them. <laughs> and I think the, the people who are good at writing them that I know love them. And I think that, you know, there's probably a relationship there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you um, you told me that you like made the decision to only work on novels while you were in the PhD program. So what drove that decision? Well, that was advice that I was given. I think like early on, I went to talk to one of my advisors who sort of brought me into the program and I was telling him about some of the flash fiction that I was doing. And, you know, I'm not sure if this was good advice or not, but he suggested that I, that I put that on hold and, and get to work on a novel. Uh, most people who are going into PhD programs are doing so to, with, with the hope of creating a, an, an academic career um, off of that. And I, I was too, I'm not sure I am anymore, but I was at the time. And there was a lot of pressure. I, I was feeling a lot of pressure at that point to have a book um, because you want to, if you're applying for it, creative writing, teaching positions at the college level or, you know, grad level, you have to have at least, I think now probably two books, um, of novels or short stories. And I, and I knew just from talking to people that publishing a collection of short stories on its own was not super likely to happen. Um, most publishers don't go for that. So it seemed logical that I, I would have to write a novel if I wanted to publish a book. Um, I'm not sure that thought process was, very productive. Ultimately, I, I think, I think treating your writing as, as a series of products, you know, designed to position you in a career is what a lot of people in creative writing programs are sort of struggling with. I'm not sure if that's the right, I, I'm not sure if that's the way to think about writing. Um, but I was at the time. And I think, I, I mean, I'm pretty happy that I, that I wrote all those novels. I, I'm really pleased with it. I, I may never go back to writing short stories. I love writing novels so much. So, Well, now I'm going to put you on the spot and I'm going to say, uh, if you were in the other seat, if you're the advisor talking to the student coming in, what would your advice be starting a PhD program? I think the best advice, and I, I receive this advice from, from, from other people too, is, is to have, to have goals, um, to have things you want to accomplish while you're in this program. And, and I, I think something like producing a manuscript of some sort is, is a good goal. Um, or, you know, for my MFA program, I think my goal, though it was unstated was like, learn how to write a 20 page literary piece of fiction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I never, I never really got it, but I, I, that was the goal. I never, I never got there. Um, the goals are important, but there's a lot of pressure on people, or at least that I've known, especially in PhD programs, um, to sort of be, be turning their creative writing into a career, um, into an academic career. And I don't know if this is necessary advice because I think everybody does it, but, but questioning that is a good idea. Um, and, but I think everybody who I've been through this program with is in the process of questioning that. So I don't know if that's advice that's even worth giving. It just happens by the, the nature of doing a PhD. It's a long, long degree. Well, um, you mentioned earlier that you one of the reasons you chose Houston was because they offered you a bit more money. Um, according to the website, it says that MFAs make around 15000 a year and, and PhDs 
get around 17,000. Um, the, the program says that they work hard to provide financial support to all creative writing students. So do you know if everyone receives funding at Houston? Everyone receives funding at Houston. Um, they, they're, they're one of the places that, that does that and they don't play coy with, uh, who gets more funding than others. There's department awards. Um, so you can win a little more money if, if your stories get picked, but that's not something that people live on. The, the thing that's really useful that makes Houston special in terms of cost, both cost of living and, and money is, is, um, you're, you're able to do these, um, you know, these writing workshops, you're able to work in schools, you're able to teach all these extra classes that can, um, some of them are pay pretty well. Um, and if you're living just off that base stipend of 15,000 or 17,000, depending on which program you're in, is that enough to live comfortably in Houston? Um, it depends on who you ask and where they live and, and what their kind of, their kind of lifestyle looks like. Uh, I, I think for some people, yeah. Um, but I mean, Houston's getting more expensive. I think it used to, it used to be able to brand itself as kind of a cheap city, but I don't think it's as cheap as it used to be. And, uh, I think the, the stipend is, is appreciating slower than the cost of living in Houston is. So I think this might've been a pretty generous stipend, you know, s- s- seven or eight years ago, but I, I think it, it's, you know, it's, it's on the edge. You, you'll, you'll have to, there are some like housing decisions that are, are tricky in Houston because it's a big city. Um, obviously the, the further away from the city center you live, the cheaper it gets, but the more you have to commute. Right. Uh, and so I, I made a decision to pay a little bit more for my apartment, but live within biking distance of campus. Um, I really appreciated that. It, it made my life a lot easier and it made it so I could participate in a lot more of the social things that happened in the program. Well, you have a BFA, you have an MFA, you're working on the PhD. Um, so you have a lot of experience studying creative writing. Um, I want to give you the last word here. Is there anything we missed? Any last minute advice or any kind of uh, expectations versus reality that you might want uh, listeners to know about? I do think applying applying to anything and submitting your work and, and putting your writing out there um, is, is a pretty difficult process for everybody. And I think especially people who are applying to MFAs for the first time, uh, it, it feels like your whole life is on the chopping block in a certain way. I just talked to somebody who's applying to MFAs. who didn't get into any this year and, and he's a wonderful writer. Uh, we, we got, we were this close to publishing his piece in Gulf coast and, and that kind of blew my mind um, that, you know, someone so talented wouldn't, wouldn't get into a program on his first um, application. But I, and I, I, I maintain that it's, it's not a crapshoot, but there are all kinds of reasons that people get picked for programs um, that people get in and people don't get in. Um, and I think it's really important to early on get comfortable with the idea that if I'm rejected from something, it's not anything to do with me as a person. It might not even be anything to do with my writing um, and to be able to hang, hang on to your ego in the face of a lot of rejection is, is one of the kind of most important skills as a writer that I've learned. And it starts with the MFA applications. Um, and if, if the writing's important to you, um, you, you know, it's something, you, it's something you learn to live with. But it, I, I, I think for me as, as a writer, it, it felt like everybody was sort of okay with this. And I was the weird one for being so hurt about it. But I think um, what I learned is that everybody, everybody feels this way and it's hard for everybody. And um, the, 
terrible feelings of rejection. I mean, you're not alone in, in feeling this. If that's something that, you know, people are feeling, it's it's very real. So, Well, this has been lovely. I really enjoyed talking craft and process and the program, of course. So thank you so much for coming by and chatting with me. Thanks a lot, Jared. I appreciate it.